Everyone's entrepreneurial journey is different, and to me, that's what's so fascinating about the experience. It's also part of the reason I started this podcast, because I knew no two stories would be alike. Taking this into account, one might argue that Dan Murth's business started like many others in that he created products he wanted himself, only to find out others were willing to buy them. However, this is also where his story differs. You see, Dan built a desk, and then his wife Sarah found a product competition to submit it for, and they won second place. Then they submitted the design to another competition, and in a week, they branded the business Artifox, built the brand's website, even shot a video, all in a week. Oh, and then wound up being selected as one of the winners. If that isn't efficiency at its finest, I don't know what is. I recall a Venn diagram where three circles were comprised of awesome brand, quality product, and cheap, or discounted, and the middle where the three intersect stated, this doesn't exist. Well, I'm here to tell you, Artifox is about as close as it comes to that brand existing. It's tasteful, it's cool, it's very well designed, it's functional, it's timeless, all while being affordable considering the industry in which it exists. We explore Dan's beginnings, including the Thanksgiving soccer matches that occur in his sister's basement. Yeah, you heard that right, in her basement. And how Dan was meant to be an engineer, but decided to apply his understanding of how things function and couple it with the creative outlet of design. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, getting to know Dan and hear what could be described as an ethics-based approach to running his business, who incidentally happens to be a cyclist as well, but I'll let him tell it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to join the show. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Yeah, I don't know how much you've heard the show, but we usually start these things off with sort of, you know, just basic background stuff. Um, I believe you're based in St. Louis, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Now, were you raised there as well? Yeah, yeah. I was born and raised in St. Louis, um, kind of North County, actually almost the exact same area where Jeremy, my buddy that you've interviewed in the past, uh, Jeremy Kirkland, was from. Sweet. Yeah, nice. What did your parents do when you were growing up? Uh, so we, my family actually owned a small like furniture store. Oh, my dad had like, you know, nothing big. Like it was just kind of like a mom and pops place that he would, you know, source furniture from other bigger companies and just kind of do these small commercial spaces where he sold anything from like, you know, decorative little, um, objects like these weird little tchotchkes, tchotchkes (laughs) all the way, all the way up to like you know, big, nice mattresses and, and whatnot. Sweet. So did he find himself in High Point, North Carolina quite often? Um, sometimes. A lot of times going down to like Mississippi and going to Chicago to all of the kind of big trade shows and, and fairs where he would go kind of purchase from the bigger um, suppliers. Nice. And then, yeah, I mean, he just had like these kind of small stores. It was a very humble business owner, not really one of those, you know, giant corporations or anything. Right. Cool. I, um, I grew up about 45 minutes east of high point. So I just know that that's like a hotbed for furniture. (laughs) Yeah. And now it's like, if you're, if you're getting like American manufactured stuff, that area is, uh, is definitely where you got to go. Um, kind of anything in the East Northeast, you get a lot of, um, really high end stuff, which is kind of where some of our stuff's being produced now. Oh, cool. So you are producing stuff over there. 
Yeah, more recently, we've kind of started talking to um, some manufacturers over there and then specifically some in Vermont at the moment. Um, Sweet. They do really like more high-end furniture. We kind of, when we started in St. Louis, um, just, you know, by necessity because of proximity, um, we were working mostly with, and still do work with some more like kind of cabinetry um, type companies that do more like casework. So mm-hmm. furniture isn't, wasn't their wheelhouse. We kind of had to educate them and like them educate us and find a nice middle ground. Um, but more recently we've gone out and found these more high end furniture manufacturers to kind of um, really start to take things to the next level. So what, what kind of things were you in like into in high school? Like what were you like in high school? Um, I mean, growing up as a kid, I was always going to be an engineer. My grandparents always said, you're an engineer. You're going to be an engineer. I played with Legos nonstop, took all my toys apart, put them back together. Um, so it was always like engineer, engineer. Um, so it was either like engineering stuff and like physics or it was sports because my whole family, so I come from a, a family of seven siblings and wow. we all play sports. And so like you kind of were just, you know, not not ruthlessly forced into, but like just by, again, like proximity of a bunch of athletes, you were yeah. kind of just like, oh, I'm going to play soccer. I'm going to play baseball. I'm going to play lacrosse because that's what, you know, is happening around me. Um, so it was like, soccer specifically nonstop. We all played soccer, still all play soccer. My sister has a soccer field in her basement. Um, wait, what? Hold on. Wait, she has a soccer field in her basement. Yeah. So she has, my sister has four kids. One of my sisters has four kids. They all play soccer and she bought a house a few years back and it just happened to have like an indoor, like soccer field, like a little turf and like walled up and all of the windows are plexied over so that you can just go down there and just kick a ball around and it's fun every time we go over there for a holiday we end up in the basement playing for a couple hours checking people up against the wall (laughs) yeah that's insane so i'm just curious what are the dimensions of this basement (laughs) uh i mean it's not giant like it's kind of like um i would say the the field is probably like 25 by 50 maybe something like that maybe even a little bit smaller well still i mean 50 feet that's a that's a good size room. Wow. That's awesome, man. That sounds super fun to, to work off that Turkey over Thanksgiving. I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 You end up getting uh, real sweaty. You come back upstairs and everybody's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Burning it off before you consume it, I guess. Uh, what, um, did you ever have a job in high school or were you just like focused on sports and practice and stuff? Um, yeah. So I either was working, for my dad. So like, that was kind of one of the things that probably got me into furniture, right. Was, um, working at his kind of facilities. And a lot of the times my job would be just cause it was, you know, in my nature to like build things and take them apart was to like put together the, the displays and like assemble the furniture for the showroom and, you know, piece things together. Maybe if he had a whole bunch of stuff that was kind of, you know, end of inventory, trying to make it into new inventory. Um, so that kind of stuff, Honestly, it's probably what got me into to building and, and, and furniture in general. What is your dad up to now? Is he, is he retired? Does he still have a store? Or? No, he's uh. so he kind of retired as an, as an owner. I mean, really probably in like 2008 when, you know, the markets mm-hmm. kind of crashed and housing markets crashed. He kind of had to just kind of bow out and get rid of everything he had and, you know, was not good at all. But um, since then he has gone and just taken his experience and now he's more of like a rep for um, other massive kind of corporations where, you know, he just kind of goes around the Midwest and buys and sells 
kind of on a small scale. It's kind of like he's almost like half retired. Cool. So is he helping you at all then? A little bit, you know, he's, he's definitely like old school about it. So it's always like, you know, he's like, oh, this is what you should do. And it's like, well, it's a little different now, but I, I, the foundation of what he's talking about is always super helpful, especially when it's just like kind of owning a business thing where it's like, you know, talking about, you know, allocation of capital and being like, okay, well, if you have inventory that can still count as capital and here's some like things that, that I've learned along the way. And those things are definitely useful. You got to always kind of take it and be like, okay, how does, how does that old school mindset apply in like modern business? Right. So to an extent, yeah. Um, but it's, it's so different how we sell it. And the fact that we're designing and manufacturing ourselves is just so different than kind of buying and selling right. things almost as like a commodity, you know? Yeah. Kind of the wholesale model type of thing. Yep. Right. Right. Where'd you go to college? So I kind of jumped around, um, right after high school, uh, and neither of my parents went to college. So a lot of my siblings did, but you know, my parents are very like, you know, open to any type of path that you want to take They aren't They aren't like the type that's like, here's the track that is set in front of you. You go to college then you go and get your master's and then you go into the workforce. They're more like, what do you want to do? Like, what are you interested in? Um, you don't have to go to college if you don't want to, you could get a job, you could, you know, kind of go down any path. Um, which is great. And I think that actually kind of helped me do what I wanted to do and not what I thought I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was always told that I was going to be an engineer and I started doing that. So right out of high school, um, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. I kind of toured a few places and some spots that were more engineering focused, but didn't have soccer. And then I went other places um, with friends that were playing soccer that were, you know, maybe not as good of a school, but um, they had half of my high school team on it. So I actually ended up going to a community college right out of high school, um, basically to play soccer and kind of experiment with what path I wanted to go down. So I got to kind of, for for pretty much free, got to jump around and kind of explore majors. Um, Was still focused on engineering at that time. Uh, But, you know, pretty quickly, I realized that engineering is not as creative a field as I kind of was built for, right? It was like right. all of the mechanical elements of it, all the problem solving I loved, but I wasn't going to, you know, just want to build gears and components to something or, you know, just be part of a, a, a building like where an architect gets to design um, and I'm just going to have to solve the problems to make sure that it can actually function. Yeah, totally. So pretty quickly, I kind of, started to explore more stuff. Like right at the end of my scholarship, I was like, all right, I don't know if this is what I want to do. So I'm going to, I'm going to try graphic design. I'm going to try architecture and like drafting. Uh, I'm going to try like a little bit of video. And after that, I kind of switched and was like, okay, these are, these feel more like accurate to, to kind of my personality. Mm -hmm. So I kind of switched over into graphic design primarily. Um, So it was like fine art, with a focus in, in graphic design and right. ended up, you know, it kind of added some more time to my college career and I have like an extra associate's degree that is, you know, somewhat meaningless, but I think, you know, even though it might not mean a lot to like a lot of people who put a lot of, have a lot of pride in their degrees and whatnot. For me, it was like, cool. I learned a lot about engineering and now in like where I'm at now, it's, it's, you know, priceless to me because I can actually speak from that standpoint of understanding 
the engineering of a product that I'm developing instead of just being what happens with a lot of designers. It's like they don't actually understand how things work or limitations of like the physics of an object. Right. I think it was kind of great and a blessing in disguise to kind of go down a path and then switch to another path. And honestly, I think that what's great about community college is you get to explore that stuff very inexpensively. Right. Uh, eventually, I went to like a private um, university, um, Maryville. So I kind of was in like the St. Louis Community College, which is there's like a bunch of campuses here. Mm -hmm. But after those, I kind of put together a portfolio and went out to, to this other college with a friend and was just like, she was like, hey, you can get a scholarship if you bring your portfolio and they like it. And I was like, okay. And took that and got, you know, a great scholarship kind of just out of nowhere. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to keep doing this and keep learning. Um, which was great because it kind of paralleled what Sarah, my wife and co-founder of Artifacts was doing, um, except for she was going to get her master's in architecture. And I was just trying to get my, my bachelor's at that point. Oh, funny. Well, that's cool. So did you guys meet in school? You and your wife, Sarah? We actually met as kids, um, basically like high school time. Uh, she actually, again, like to reference Jeremy, who you've interviewed, they, her and Jeremy went to school um, as kids. And then like Jeremy was one of the many people I met in, um, high school and kind of started to kind of latch onto a, a new group. And that's through all of that is how I met my now wife, Sarah. Oh, that's sick. So were you, uh, were you into punk and hardcore as well? Uh, a little bit. Actually, Jeremy got me into a lot of music, um, early on that I kind of wasn't really into. I listened to like oldies and stuff with my dad all the time and so I wasn't really into anything specifically until yeah. that moment and honestly something interesting is like before high school I was I was homeschooled all the way up till till high school oh no way yeah so a lot of like my personality was formed by like my kind of family unit and I still had tons of friends from sports and stuff but sure you know not on the level of what everybody else that was going to school constantly so what so what number are you in the line of seven so there's five boys and two girls both my sisters are older and then I got two older and two younger brothers. So I'm like right in the middle of the boys and right, right below the middle, middle. Interesting. Yeah. When there's that many kids, you don't really have middle child syndrome, I guess. Like you just, everybody's like, it's just you, you against the world, right? The <laughs> Yeah. And we, we, we still do that sometimes as like adults, me and my brothers will be like basically a whole like indoor soccer team like borderline the whole team. And then um, we'll bring in like cousins and stuff and we'll do like basically a whole family, family team. And it's not that, that hard to field a, a full team like that. Are you just challenging Jeremy and Sean to come over to the basement and just roughhouse them up in the uh, indoor soccer arena? <laughs> oh yeah. Jeremy never got as into soccer as, as Sean did. Um, Sean and I used to play a lot just for fun. And when I told him that my sister got a house with uh, like a soccer field in the basement uh, just blew their minds. Like, of course, of course, I mean, why, why would it be any different for uh, the Mirth family to, to not have a, a soccer field in the basement? That's incredible. So um, I'll ask you a Jeremy question that he asks. What, uh, is there a particular album that you kind of gravitate towards throughout your life that you always go back to? Um, there, it kind of goes in chunks. There was like different albums that I really liked at different times in my life. Um, probably like right out of high school, late high school, there was like a few bands that I liked a lot. And some of them I don't like as much now, 
but like early on, <laughs> I would say I, uh, I really liked Muse. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, sure. Their early stuff I really liked. And then, uh, I liked Kings of Leon a lot back then. Sure. Really loved some of their early albums now. I mean, it's kind of, they've become very pop rock, which is fine. I'm, I don't, I don't get mad at people for selling out and getting, getting paid to do, to do their, their art form in a slightly different way. But, yeah. uh, that was some stuff. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of narrow it down, uh, things that I listened after that. Cause I'm the type of person that doesn't only gravitate to one kind of genre. There's a few that I don't love, but right, I, right. I just appreciate, um, kind of all the different genres to, to some extent. And I, and I jump, jump around quite a bit. Yeah. I, so I kind of relate to that only from the perspective of, um, I, I play drums. So I really just kind of gravitate to bands with good drummers, like, or, or drummers I respect. So they're not always in the same genre, of course, because there's such different ways to play the drums. So I'm always intrigued with people like doing stuff that, for example, I would never think to do or play in a way that is just completely out of my realm. And, uh, you know, so I just hold those types of bands and stuff to high regard just because I, I couldn't physically do it. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. There's, there's definitely something to, um, appreciate in, in someone else when they can do something that you're not quite there yet, or maybe could never even get there. Yeah. Being able to kind of step back and just appreciate that for, uh, for the talent that it is, is, is also, is always humbling. Yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned you founded the company Artifox, which is your company that you've uh, founded with your wife, Sarah. You guys are roughly seven years old now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So probably. how did it come about exactly? Like what was sort of the impetus? So, I mean, we kind of have to tell this story all the time and it really is, it's interesting always to look back at, back at it and try to figure out like the specific moments. And, right. you know, the moment that we always look back to is um, I was living with a bunch of friends, you know, almost like a little mini frat house of sorts, but more of like a bunch of ragtag goofballs that just lived in one guy's house that, that was owned or that owned it. And um, during that time we had a lot of people over like a lot of like, parties and stuff. But, um, I was also working freelance, um, graphic design and like video work at that time. And so because we just, none of us had any money and we all lived in this house, we would always just kind of build things and kind of make our own furniture and stuff. And I was always like making furniture for, you know, different spots around the house just for fun. And I kind of outfitted, um, my room that then became like my office. And then our future offices with stuff that I was just making. Right. Um, the reason I was making is because like, as we were, I was looking for stuff that, um, that kind of fit all these kind of needs of like technology and, you know, cable management and all these like things that we're, we're using every day. Um, it was either that you would find some crazy, super like tech heavy product that like was not attractive. It was just super utilitarian, had all these crazy attachments, or you were going to have to find something that was like super nice, like a nice mid-century table or desk um that really had no function it just looked pretty and had a surface at the right height right so i was like cool i i, I love these two realms and i just started like making my own stuff and as i did that um we would constantly get people that would come by and like oh where'd you buy this where'd you get this and i was like oh i made that um like oh cool like when are you gonna start selling them and i was like i never 
really thought about <laughs> selling them. I'm doing, I'm doing graphic design right now, which, um, you know, is great. I know how to build a brand. I know how to build a website and how to do all the stuff and market and video. Um, but I never had really thought too much about, um, getting into like actual hardware, actual product design, um, until that moment. And it kind of started to snowball from there where it was like, um, showing enough interest and like, okay, cool. Hey, maybe we should enter some of this stuff into a, a contest. And I think Sarah came across a, a contest online with, um, I believe it was apartment therapy, which, um, it was pretty, pretty big, uh, website at the time Yeah, so they're still around, they're still doing stuff. Um, but they were doing this competition where it was like, Hey, um, submit your product and your brand and your website, um, to be featured on this. And eventually you could kind of win a big prize and be featured on even um, more, uh, sites and whatnot. And I was like, okay, cool. We didn't know a whole lot about it. We had no idea what previous competitions looked like on this. Um, we just thought, cool, it's in like a week. Um, I have a, a, a design that we could make, um, and let's start spitball on branding and I can start working on a website in the background in, in probably about a week, we put together the brand, um, put together, um, all the iconography and stuff built photographed and built a website and made a little video, um, of what was our like very first product, um, and then put it into this comp competition and pretty quickly as that kind of um, competition started to progress. We saw like legit brands popping up as like top 30. And they're just like, they're going through all of them. Like who's going to be like announced to move to the next round. And early on, we're seeing like legit brands. We're going to their websites and they've been selling stuff for a long time. And we're like, oh, this is, this is beyond our reach. We're, right. you know, we're outgunned in, in, in this competition from the get go. Um, but over time we would see like other kind of little smaller brands kind of pop into there. And then eventually, um, they announced that we were, you know, in the top 30 and we're like, oh my gosh, this is kind of real. And instantly after that happened, um, instantly after that happened, we started getting phone calls from all around the world and, um, or emails saying like, Hey, when can I get this? I'm, I live in Australia or I live in Japan or, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to, to outfit my space and how many could you make? And we're like, oh my gosh, we have one that we built in my backyard in a little shed and we have no idea how to manufacture or produce this stuff. Um, so that was kind of that, that turning point. And as the competition progressed, um, we became like a top three uh, in this competition and ended up losing to like some weird little cat scratching post that was made of cardboard, something weird <laughs> like that. Um, so it was kind of like a little silly, but- um, That's amazing. But it was, it was fun. And like in that moment, it was like, okay, cool. And as like all that interest came in and all the comments start rolling in, it, it's, it's very validating to say, okay, maybe we, we have something here. Um, and then after that, there was uh, another friend said, hey, there's a, there's a local business building um, competition that you guys can enter. Um, it's called Arch Grants. It's, it's specific to St. Louis and they've kind of expanded to um, other regions. But the, the whole idea behind this is to keep or bring in businesses to grow in St. Louis to just build up that, that economy there. Oh, and very like, okay, cool. cool. Like maybe we, this has kind of got some traction here. Maybe we can take that traction into this and they give away a million dollars in like no strings attached funding to um, I can't remember how much it is. 50, it's 50, it's 50 it comes out to 50 K per um, company. Wow. And so, yeah, I guess it's like 20, 20 companies. And so um, we submitted into that and it's kind of the same thing. Like 
there's a lot of people coming in that are like pitching and it, it like, again, it like narrows it down and like, you have to go through these different stages where at first it's a business plan and then like a web link and, and that's it. And then it's like, okay, cool. We thought that was good. Now we want to talk to you. Okay, cool. That was good. Now you're going to have to present in front of a huge crowd. Okay. That now that's good. Now you have to, you know, talk in front of like these, you know, legit business owners and business creators and entrepreneurs um, from all, all across the country. And we kind of went through that whole thing and ended up winning one of those. So then it was like, okay, now we actually have a little bit of seed capital yeah. um, and all you have to do to, to keep it is just stay in St. Louis for the longevity of the distribution of it. Um, which is cool. It's, it, it really, it brought in like companies from all around the world. There's like, you know, ones from Argentina and Brazil and Africa and like all these little companies come there that would have zero dollars. And that the whole idea is just to get people in the city to start building things. Um, so that really helped kind of kick things off. And like, that was probably around the time where it became like a real business and we had to go through and do all of the kind of real businessy things like set up an LLC and set up, you know, bank accounts and, and all of those things. Wow. Well, congrats on all of that, man. That sounds like it would have been a, a thrilling time to say the least. I can only imagine how fast paced that must have. I mean, you did all of that in a week for that first submission. And like, I mean, obviously you had some expertise with design and stuff like that in video, but still, I mean, just, I speak as a one man band and I know what it's like to do certain things on certain levels. And obviously you probably had even more knowledge than I have today <laughs> to be blunt, but like, yeah, man, a week that's like, that's insane. I can only imagine what that week was like. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O. Or visit them at Contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. I did want to ask because there was a lot of articles. Like if you Google you guys, you guys have like tons of PR from around 2015 or so. Was most of that 
kind of compounded from those events of submitting? Um, actually, there was kind of a big gap in which it was like, okay, now we have to spool up and turn this into something real. Because again, at that moment, we didn't really have a lot of capabilities. So then right. it was like, okay, now we have to start finding manufacturers. And we kind of started looking in places that we were familiar with, which was, um, interestingly enough, Sarah's family lives out in like mid Missouri and there's a, a big Amish community there and that mm. Amish community manufactures furniture. Mm. So we went out there and said like, Hey, here are these things. And it's, I mean, it's such an interesting thing to, to be making these products that are like designed for like high tech work environments. Right. Um, right. One of the most low tech environments you can imagine. Um, like they literally have like hand cranked drills that they were like boring out certain stuff. And so some of our first ones that we then um, kind of, of our samples that we evolved our, our, our first desk into. Um, because again, it was like, at that point it was like, okay, how are we going to manufacture this? It was overcomplicated. Um, it was, a, it was a crash course in like actually like manufacturing design where it's to say, you know, you have to design this thing to be made, not just to be liked, you know? Right. You have to be able to work within like economies of scale of each part and all these things that we had again, never had to deal with. Um, so like, okay, let's, let's redesign. And let's find the first people that we can to kind of start manufacturing. And we just looked at like some local people and these, this, this Amish community. So with those, we then kind of um, built out our first site where you could actually purchase from. Um, actually, this was kind of, I'm kind of, the timelines are a little bit mixed because this was kind of happening during that competition because we actually, at the very end of the competition where they're like starting to um, go through the final phase, we got to say, we already have pre-sales of, hmm. of our products. And that was a big deal. And I think that's probably what um, pushed us over the line. Sure. Kind of get that funding because again, they, they want real businesses. Right. And so I think we were one of the few ones that could say like, Hey, we are a product company. Um, Cause a lot of them are technology companies or even some not-for-profits um, that are trying to do really innovative things. Um, but at that moment we got to say like, yeah, I know we're a product company. I know this isn't like the, the sexy tech kind of, you know, bubble that's happening right now where everybody wants the, the next Facebook or MySpace or something. Right. So we were kind of in, in a weird position where we were one of the few um, hardware and even less techie, a furniture brand. Um, but we kind of pushed the idea of a new kind of e-commerce um, way of selling furniture and whatnot, which actually ended up to be true and has continued to, to grow. Um, so yeah, anyway, so... Fast forward back to us trying to solve manufacturing for real as these these orders are coming in because again we kind of kickstarted it to an extent like ourselves on our own site. Um, luckily, there was platforms popping up that had um, pretty decent commerce. Um, you could do stuff in some of the WordPress um, add-ons, and I think Squarespace was, yeah. was popping up there, and um, and then uh, Shopify, of course. Um, so it was like, okay, cool. Now we actually have people's money to then fund. The manufacturing and we were, we were open with it. You know, we let everybody know these are pre-orders. These are still being manufactured. Um, but luckily people were okay with that and they're expensive too. Like our products are not some cheap thing that you buy on a whim. Right. Around a thousand dollars to kind of get into some of the bigger products. Yeah. Which I think is a, a nice sweet spot, right? Because like from a price perspective, you kind of land somewhere between Ikea and like the mid-century modern stuff, which could be several thousand, if not 10 grand for a table, 
you know, depending on the size, right? So um, was that sort of by design or was that based on costs? Like how did you guys go about your pricing? Um, a little bit of both, right? Like it's, it's expensive to make things in the U.S., but... Totally. You know, we didn't want to just, you know, go hyper premium and really just try to sell ourselves on a brand. And honestly, we couldn't at that moment. Mm -hmm. So we said, okay, what would we want? Again, like we're kind of our, our own customers to an extent, you know, we're creative professionals that work at desks all the time, you know, like yeah. you sitting at right now, like your furniture behind you, like all that stuff is uh, things that we had as well. So we kind of started to say like, okay, what would, what would we want? What could we afford? What could young professionals afford? Um, because I always wanted Herman Miller furniture, right? But I could never, could never yeah. afford it. Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, so it was like, okay, what's, what's like a nice middle ground there? So we really did just, we started to build it out and say, okay, what is like the operating costs and what are all these things and what kind of like, do you have to, to build into this to make this, this work? And that kind of is where we, we landed on, on our pricing. And, you know, realistically, like a lot of other companies that are bigger selling something like this would have to sell for far, far more because of all the middlemen, because of all the kind of branding expenses and marketing, huge, huge marketing budgets. Um, yeah. So we really tried to find a nice, a nice middle ground there. Yeah. Well, so uh, we're going to jump around a little bit, but uh, well, first of all, I want to get it out of the way. Like, how did you guys find your name? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, during that um, that online competition, we uh, we knew we had to have something, right? Because uh, <laughs> yeah. you can't just say like generic. Dan's desk, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, so we started to kind of just do what you know I had done with other clients and stuff, where it's starting to just like word cloud, starting to pull things together, um, mm. and starting to combine words. And this is like more of a modern problem than historically, but like what URLs are available? Like, what can you actually get a hold of that when people do learn about you, that they can quickly find you? Um, and what everybody does is they go to Google, they search the name, they search whatever kind of key terms they can. So yeah. we really tried to say, okay, what can be unique, but like memorable and have like some sort of meaning. And the kind of way that this kind of came together was like, um, we had artifacts, right? Like, artifacts are kind of like the meaning of that it really is just like anything that's man-made that is like left behind and can be observed by other humans as an existing artifact from the past or whatever it is. Sure. Um, so we're like, cool, we really like this, this term. So that was like one of our top terms. And then we were trying to just kind of build on that and say like, well, you know, we don't just want to just be like a super generic artifact. We want to be like clever and thoughtful and like symbiotic. And we kind of talk about like these, um, ecosystems and whatnot. And so we started to kind of look at like animals and more like natural things like foxes and foxes right. are clever. And so it was kind of this like fun, just little word mashup of artifacts and Fox. So that like clever artifacts, and then you get a nice iconography out of that and branding out of, out of that. That's cool. Yeah. For those wondering why I have a hyphen in the standard H.com standard hyphen H.com is my URL. Uh, when I searched Standard H, uh, yes, it was obviously available from an LLC standpoint because it's, you know, the throwback to the shift gate pattern of a car that millennials and anybody younger doesn't know anything about. Uh, <laughs> so so from a tech standpoint, the URL was available uh, or from the LLC perspective, it was available. But the hyphen was only because Standard H without the hyphen is owned by Standard Hydrogen Corporation. Mm hmm. 
and those jerks won't sell me the URL. They won't even respond to my emails. <laughs> so I gave up several years ago, but like, whatever. Um, that's kind of funny. Uh, so you started with a desk and, you know, through some of the articles online, you can find like this sort of, um, board like with a hook sort of wall hanging bike rack that you guys produced as well. Um, how many, like, what does your assortment look like today? Um, so today we've expanded to quite a few more SKUs, all of them kind of focusing again, like we kind of, since we started with the desk, we started to move out from that, creating accessories that work with it. Um, and, um, that even like integrate into it. Cause as we, again, as we evolved, um, so did our, our products. So the first ones were a little bigger, a little heavier, a little chunkier. And so we kind of started to create things that are easier to ship, um, because pretty quickly we realized, okay, like that's the hardest part is, is distribution, like right. physically getting these big objects to um, our customers. So we started to design things based on some of these standard shipping dimensions that um, UPS and FedEx um, and really anybody works with. Um, so we almost started to design backwards from some of those, those dimensions at, at one point. Um, and once we kind of started to get that dialed in, um, it was like, okay, cool. Now we have an understanding of this kind of pipeline and we want to sort of create efficiencies for that, that pipeline. Um, and of course, again, creating ecosystems within our kind of brand that say like, okay, cool. If someone buys this, they're, they're going to like this and they're going to want this. And if they're building out their space, they can really outfit, start outfitting the whole, whole space like that. Right. So I, I love bikes. I love to ride. Um, so the bike rack was one of our first kind of like um, tangential kind of products that we did that kind of came mm -hmm. off of that. And it's like, okay, cool. I like to ride my bike to work. Um, I need to put it somewhere and I want it to look cool. And when it's not on there, I want it to look cool, you know? Nice. Um, and again, with the, with the shipping, we started to understand, okay, what are the dimensions that we can, can ship within? And so again, it was kind of that same thing of like kind of designing for yourself where you're saying, okay, what would, a, what would I like? What can I make? And then what can be made? Um, so that kind of helped push us to a next, next level and kind of expand our reach into a new demographic that sure. wasn't just necessarily like creative office professionals. Right. It was like, I like, I like cycling. Right. And whether you do that for a living or you do anything for a living, you don't even work at a desk. It's like, cool. That kind of can, you can, you can be pulled into the brand from, from that side. Um, so those were like the first two big products that we did was, we kind of evolved the desk a little bit, again, constantly getting into efficiencies. Um, we've gone through like three or four iterations um, of the desk. Um, we've had like, cause right now it's just called desk O2 is like our primary desk, but there was like kind of in-betweens even in that first generation. Um, so, uh, so as we kind of expanded and figured out those things, we started to get into like new materials and whatnot. That's why like we started to say, okay, cool. We can, we can, now we can do, bent steel and aluminum and powder coated. Um, so kind of, we start to add little capabilities um, and then utilize those capabilities to expand into new areas. Um, so then we kind of, you know, fast forward quite a while, we started doing the side um, saying, okay, cool. This can be used again in that same space, it can be used right next to the desk and right next to the bike rack, but can go into new rooms in the home. So you can use it as a nightstand, you can use it as a side table next to a couch. Uh, you can of course use it as like a little filing cabinet um, and really making these like very highly functional, but like can like fit in anywhere 
and kind of the features and whatnot become somewhat invisible, um, which is something we always kind of look at is like that subtlety of all the functions. Right. And like, just keep kind of expanding into, into new rooms um, as we kind of go. That's awesome. Well, how many people make up the team now? There's you, there's Sarah. Who else is there? So on our team, so we kind of, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of layered in a few ways that we have a lot of creative in-house and then we have manufacturing partners and then we have like distribution hubs. Um, and early on, we were kind of doing a lot of that, obviously not manufacturing. That's just too, too big for us, but we were doing distribution from, from ourselves. So really our team right now is um, like in our office is usually anywhere between like five and seven. Um, and then we have like some other outlets, other contractors that kind of come in for photography and video. And then we have um, marketing contractors. So again, it's like, it's so different nowadays of how you can kind of modularly build a company um, with resources, with all those like kind of uh, resource for hire right. systems that are out there. Right. So our core is usually between like five and seven and then, I mean, that can expand upwards of like 15 plus, depending on who we're contracting at any given moment and what we're launching and what we're working on. Sure. And this is still a direct-to-consumer brand or are you carried anywhere? Um, we're not currently carried anywhere. Sweet. There's we, we get a lot of interest for that sometimes, but you know, it's always tricky to navigate because we've kind of built ourselves as a direct-to-consumer um, company and we try to kind of keep you know, our pricing structured so that people can, can afford us. And it's, it gets a little tricky as you get into that. You have to like right. pad it for additional people and whatnot. Right. Yeah, totally. Who would you consider to be your closest competition? Um, it's, it's kind of interesting because we will hear anything from, you know, saying like, oh, I could run to Ikea and have a desk. Um, or it's like, okay, people would be literally like shopping because those people usually aren't the real customers they're just you know they fell in there and are kind of saying like like why they don't understand kind of you know the pricing and the materials and like all the things that go into it and american made and everything um so there are those like on the the fringe weird yeah, yeah fringe there um and there's people that are looking at honestly like are like more serious competitors are those like higher end like the herman millers like the mutos like the knolls um and I think what is kind of happening there that we have is we're, we're kind of small and scrappy again, where it's like they were at one point and they're so bigger and more corporate. Right. Um, but then there's also, there's also all of these little um, companies that kind of jump in here and there that uh, will do online stuff. And I don't know, I hesitate to name anybody specific, specific. Yeah. Yeah. Not that this needs to be a podcast about them. I was just, I was just kind of curious, uh, because of your pricing that you you're kind of in a unique sort of spot. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's what kind of becomes like the, the challenge, right. Is, is making slightly a new market of that, like in between where it's like, Hey, you can get that super high end stuff that you've always wanted, but could never really, you know, rationalize getting, um, from a new, kind of up and coming brand. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, leading it kind of, um, I guess it creates also a competitive advantage for that reason as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a blessing and a curse, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Have you guys been tempted to take on investment or anything like 
for scalability or, or what, what's the, what's that process been like for you? Yeah. Super early on. Um, we, aside from winning every competition you enter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Most of those, again, like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, although amazing and great, like to get things going, that's not the type of money that a lot of companies require to get going. So early on, we tried to see like, okay, do we really need it? And we had a lot of other friends through these competitions and whatnot that were like going through the same process. And depending on what they were trying to do, they either had to get funding or they wanted it to kind of streamline, speed things up. Um, We kind of sat back and said like, okay, how fast do we want to grow? How fast do we need to grow? Um, And how much external kind of input do we want right now? Because a lot of the funding that was kind of happening at that time, again, was for like technology. Um, And even though we were an online direct-to-consumer brand that fits some of that stuff, it was um, a little outside of what most people were doing at the moment. Um, It was more like, you know, SaaS, like software as services and, and, you know, social networky type um, kind of tangential or tertiary kind of products. Um, and so we kind of just shied away from it for, for a long time, um, still have. And luckily, like we were growing at a rate where we felt like, well, why should we do this? And again, like during that time, we're hearing horror stories of like, oh my gosh, this, this particular investor was just the wrong partner. And that got really difficult Mm -hmm. and we had to like, you know, break ties. And then that ate up more of our capital. And it was just like, you know, it didn't feel right at the time. Um, and we were kind of figuring ourselves out at that time. Um, as things have gone on, we still have yet to take any investment, but, um, we're less against that, um, at this point. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because like I've always said, even for, for standard age, like the day you take money from somebody is the day you start answering questions, you know, or, or, and, or demands, which could be even worse. Um, so not that you can't, you know, structure it in such a way where you still maintain creative control, but still sometimes to your point earlier about like the shipping boxes, sometimes your design is a function of, of operations as well, you know, and if, if they see operations going one way, it might influence the design, even though you have quote creative control. Right. Um, So it's a, it's a sticky situation and can be. um, Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're marrying whoever, gives you money for the most part. So like, you right. know, you wouldn't just go around and marry any random person and commit your life to them. Um, right. and that's what you would be doing. Um, especially depending on like how much your company and how much you've kind of put into it at that moment. And, you know, for us, it's like, it's like a, it really is like a child, right? Like that you've been fostering and growing and all this stuff. And it's really, you know, hard to give up control over something like that to somebody that you don't know that well. And yeah it would take a while to, to really get to know them and trust them on that level. So, you know, again, it's, you could find those people, people do it all the time. Um, I'm not like against it, but it's always just something you have to really decide for yourself if it's, if it's the right move or not. Yeah, totally. And then, you know, taking it a step further with regards to private equity, venture cap, you know, that kind of stuff, they're just looking at bottom line and profitability. So, knowing that you guys produce your stuff here in the U S like I would think the knee jerk reaction from somebody like that would be like, well, let's just manufacture this stuff overseas 
and it'll look the same, it'll feel the same, but the margins will go through the roof, right? So yeah. is that important to you to maintain that that manufacturing process here stateside? Yeah, so we aren't like against like international manufacturing. Um, it, it really always comes down to like, where's the best place to make a specific thing? Sure. Because you could try to make lots of stuff in the US, but you would probably would make an inferior product to these highly established um, kind of manufacturing facilities and like honestly giant ecosystems. Um, I go to China like once, I mean, lately it hasn't been very often, but right. every year I probably would go several times to go meet with manufacturers and whatnot for like other projects and whatnot. Um, and the, the level at which they've built their manufacturing like capabilities is so far ahead in so many different realms. And the same can be said in like India for fabrics and um, soft goods and whatnot and name any other country and they probably have specialties in, in certain things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we would always look at it is finding the right place to have that specific thing made. Um, we're experimenting with some new stuff that can be 3D printed and there are US-based 3D printing facilities that can do some really awesome stuff. So um, we would do that here even though you know, if you're doing some electronics and injection molding type stuff, it's harder to find them. Again, you can, you definitely can. But again, it's like all about where's the right place to have that specific thing made to accomplish the goals that you're trying to accomplish with it. Like, do you want to make something that's really high end or do you want to make something that's price competitive or do you want to make something that's in the middle? You know, you can kind of go anywhere and it's, it's all about where your thing fits and then where that thing should be manufactured. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because like there's such a negative connotation historically about made in China and stuff like that and it's just such an old way of thinking to be honest just uh, completely due to the point you just made, right? Like they're manufacturing and stuff like in fashion for example, if you're making a technical jacket, right, uh of synthetic fibers, right? China is going to be the place to do it or Taiwan or, you know, somewhere in Asia where their manufacturing capabilities. Now there are places in Canada, like I know, um, Arcteryx, for example, produces a lot of their stuff up and up, you know, North of the border here, but that isn't for everyone. Right. And that doesn't mean that we as a United States, like we just don't have the capabilities of making certain things. Like you have to go to Asia. Right. So I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that just because it's just, I don't know, just kind of old hat, but in a wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it kind of went away and is circling back for different reasons that we probably shouldn't go down too, too far, but yeah, this different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there really is. Um, there really is like places that have just, and like it's, it's been over, you know, tens, dozens of years where like these, these like little environments, ecosystems that gets specialized in these things. Like, so again, in China, there's like certain regions that are dedicated to like metal manufacturing where you can get like cook metal cookware and knives and stuff. And everywhere in that whole region has decided this region is going to be dedicated to that thing. So you get these like just massive um, like talent pools and capability pools that are all building off of each other. And if they need a part, they can literally just go down the street and get a part And if they need something fabricated or whatever, and it's like, you know, for most things, we don't have that here. Um, Honestly, most countries don't have that. Um, Again, there's like these little pockets of specialty things where like generationally they grow up and become specialized in things. And we can do that here. And I would love to do that more. And like, that's 
we're, we are making things that can be made in the U S especially like our core elements, like these, these wood products that are made from, you know, native materials um, to the regions where they're being manufactured. So it's like, that makes a ton of sense to do that. And luckily a lot of those, you know, I wouldn't say a lot, but some of those have survived long enough through this transition of everything being moved um, overseas, anywhere overseas to be manufactured, um, where it's kind of killed a lot of industry in the US. These, there are these few little pockets here and there, like we were talking about before in the, in, at the Carolinas and up in Vermont, and even in Canada, we've gone to Canada on several trips to kind of visit manufacturers that um, align with us. Um, they're, still, they're still there. And hopefully we can kind of latch onto those and start to kind of grow them and rebuild some of like the US manufacturing. I would, I would love, 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 love to see that. Yeah. Uh, we have other friends that are doing domestic manufacturing and, and kind of trying to grow that as well. Cool. What are some of the native woods that you're using for these wooden products? Like what's, what's native to St. Louis area? So um, we, we use walnut, like a black walnut, and there is like Missouri black walnut. In fact, we are at Sarah's family's farm. We are replanting as many trees as we can on her family property to grow walnut and walnut um, it, this is kind of an interesting, like sustain, sustainability kind of dilemma, um, that we get into because it grows extremely slow. Like it takes generations to, to grow this material and yeah. we're using it. But the way that we look at it as, um, yes, that's the case, but this product, if taken care of will last literally forever. Right. Will, you can hand it down to children and grandchildren and great grandchildren if you take care of it. So if, if our customers take pride in this, then it doesn't really matter because, you know, it's, yes, it took a long time to make this, but it's going to last again, indefinitely. If you take care of it, all the materials that we're making things out of, we make our, our products so they can be assembled and disassembled like infinite times. Um, unlike, you know, Ikea where it's like, if you try to take that thing apart, it's done. <laughs> right. Right. That's its last, uh, existence there. Um, so what we do is say like, okay, cool. We're going to use these like, very kind of valuable raw materials, but we're going to make things that um, we believe can last long enough to kind of make up for that. And of course, like I said, we're, we're buying from um, these farms and these manufacturers that are doing things in the right way. And um, they're all kind of like certified in, in all the things they need to be. So it's like, um, it's like, as long as we can kind of keep an eye on some of that stuff and then push those that maybe aren't yet to like in that direction to say like, Hey, this is the direction everyone's going. I think uh, it's a, it's definitely a net positive because we, we kind of live in a very disposable consumable culture right now. Totally. A, a college student will outfit an entire dorm room or apartment. And then the next year, all that's in the trash and going right. into a, a landfill. Um, and so we know that, and we even get emails and messages of saying like, Hey, I kept my box. Um, and it's so easy to move this thing around now. And I've taken it to like three or four different apartments and, you know, thanks for making it so that I can move this thing with me. Um, and that's when you, yeah, that's when you really like kind of start to feel like, okay, cool. We've made the right choice and, and we're doing the right thing. Yeah, for sure. So what is your marketing strategy these days? Um, so that's always changing too. Like we started to kind of go down this before, but um, there were certain times where um, we got a lot of just organic features on, you know, all over the place. Um, we would get on Uncreate and Hype Beast and all these cool websites that are really speaking to the audiences that we're looking for. 
Um, but over time that's kind of changed and, you know, their business models are always changing. They might need to have more things that are paid for features and whatnot. Um, and now it's more like pay to play almost everywhere you go. Right. Which kind of sucks, but, um, also is a little bit understandable as a business owner. I get that they're kind of trying to figure out how, how they can make their money and employ their teams as well. Right. So now it's like, we are always looking for cool collaborations, um, whether it's with making a new product or even just like helping somebody outfit a space, you know, work a lot with some, some really cool YouTubers to help them out, out, out uh, outfit their spaces. Um, and then, you know, we'd go down all the normal routes that are right now dramatically changing, like the Facebook marketing, Google AdWords and all those, all those different things. Yeah. Uh, we should talk because black walnut just happens to be my favorite wood on the planet. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not saying that just because I'm talking to you. I made a, uh, a, a clothing rack actually that I could shoot you a photo of later that I made the base out of black walnut and it turned out really, really well. Um, it's, it's, it's a heavy piece of wood, man. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. Pretty quickly. We realized that, that people love it. We, we sell far more of our black walnut than, than any other color or color combination. Um, it really is just, it's a special material. Yeah. And nothing feels quite like it, especially when it's all solid and made of that. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's just this weird, like emotional connection almost that you have like sitting at it and interacting with it because it's, it's from something living. It's so natural. And maybe right. it's because it takes so long to grow that it has like this, this weird, just kind of feel to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, sitting at one of our tables, massive piece of walnut. That's like, you know, three foot by six foot. Oh, amazing. Love it. Well, you guys are such a small team. What, like, do you have a social media manager or do you do your social media or like, how do you guys handle that? Um, we do our social media in house. Um, like all that stuff, all of our content is, is made by like our internal team. Like that's all the stuff that we really, um, hold tight to, um, because the things that, that we have, I guess, the most um, sort of experience and skills in. Um, we obviously have to pull in certain specialists, um, you know, people that have better cameras and equipment and stuff to shoot certain things. Um, but when it comes down to like, what are we, what stories are we telling and how are we telling them? That's all kind of internal. Um, certain platforms that you get on, you might have somebody that like recommends certain things to help with it. I uh, move it in the right direction. So that just fits those specific audiences. Yeah. But at the end of the day, um, we're kind of writing and creating, you know, all of our, um, our content. Sweet. I, um, yeah, I was kind of curious actually how COVID has affected your business just based on the price of materials and everything going through the roof. But I guess if you're going, I don't know, to Amish country, maybe they're not really aware <laughs> uh, of, of the other pricing structures going up. But then again, it's also an interesting moment because more people are spending time in their homes. So the investment into their spaces is, has also increased. So what's, what's COVID been like for you guys? Yeah. So early on, um, it really, it really pushed, honestly, it really pushed sales up quite a bit. Everybody went home and was working from home and was like really, again, like considering their space, which is something we always think about and encourage people to do is like really consider your space and make sure that's something that you, you know, like and can create in and can work in and can be in and actually be happy. So sure. that kind of landed in that moment, everybody kind of was went home and was like, I don't, I can't really get a lot done here. I don't 
I don't, you know, particularly love this environment to the degree that I, that I want to. Mm-hmm. So that kind of really pushed things up. And of course, you know, working from home, we sell desks that, that helped a ton. Um, in fact, it, it influenced, heavily influenced our, some of our most recent, like our table, which is like this, um, workspace, workspace slash gathering space where it's like, you can kind of do all these different things in it. Um, and it not feel out of place in any of those, um, environments. So like that product was kind of birthed from, um, this kind of experience. And it was something we were generally working on, but we like dramatically, I would say kind of like tweaked things here and there and shifted it in a direction to say, okay, cool. Yeah. We wanted to do a bigger desk and yeah, we wanted to be a, wanted to do a table, but like, let's find this nice middle ground so that people that are at home, especially people that don't have like an office, right. A lot of people's kitchen tables and countertops turned into their, their offices for, you know, better part of a year. Sure. Um, so let's make, let's make something so that people can do that. And the truth is like the way that we work is probably forever changed and was already changing um, before this of saying like, okay, you're going to work this day from home and that day from the office and that day from the road. And, you know, people are kind of moving about and more um, kind of transient than ever. And so that's kind of what we're, we're looking at is like making things for that. And the, you know, the sort of lockdowns and whatnot really pushed us to do that that much faster. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of curious too, like how your relationships have changed with, with shipping companies, like these things are heavy, right? So I would imagine it's insanely expensive to ship, but obviously usually the equation is as quantity goes up, the price goes down. Right. So is that just been the case with you guys or have you, and you ship internationally too, as you mentioned. So like I shipped a t-shirt to uh, Singapore once and it was $170. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's a very like dynamic thing as well. And what's mm-hmm. always interesting is the, the different shipping companies are always kind of fighting for people's attention and, you know, we'll go with one as our primary and then the other one will come and give a better deal and they'll kind of push each other down a little bit. Um, but it is, it's definitely something that's been tricky. And like you said before, like materials and stuff going up, like all these things are being are like elevating and it's really, it's really like a hard thing to navigate because, you know, all of those costs trickle down to the customer and yeah. we're trying to find ways to kind of, you know, split the difference and try to be like, okay, these things are tough, but like, you know, we don't want to just make everybody like screw everybody that was trying and wanted to, to buy something. So we're really trying to finally navigate this thing to say like, Hey, we're, you know, we're trying to take some of this burden. Um, obviously you can't just take all of it because, you know, then your company goes, goes down the drain. Um, so it's like really tricky to say like, okay, these material prices are going up. These shipping rates are going up and finding that nice middle ground to say like, Hey, we're thinking about our customers and our fans at the same time as our team and employees. Right. What, uh, what are the kinds of things that inspire you these days? Like, is it other work and kind of like, how do you stay motivated and, and what, what's the inspiration? Um, I mean, so many things. I, I love objects. I love architecture. I love, um, like engineering masterpieces, you know, uh, we're actually in a pretty cool time where there's a lot of shift in, in objects and things that we use, um, cars, for example, um, you know, this shift to, to electric cars and the interior and the experience of a car that could drive itself 
and it becomes more like your home, right? Like those things are super interesting um, because space in general is something that we're always looking at, right? Like you're always in environments and whether you're thinking about it or not, like these things are like crafted good or bad to create certain experiences. And so mm -hmm. that stuff has always been a big thing. And of course, like Sarah being an architect got me really into architecture. So anywhere we go, any experiences that we have, we're always like looking at these like much larger scale experiences and then right. saying like, Hey, what can we learn from these big, massive buildings or these, you know, complexes and how they're kind of treating people and how can we kind of bring that, the, 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 the beautiful things that they do there down to like a smaller scale so that someone's home can kind of have these elements that have been, you know, heavily invested and thought through to, to make really good experiences. Like how can we do that on a smaller scale in people's homes? Sure. So assuming you and Sarah have similar tastes, what are, what are a couple of architects that you guys love? We do. We do have a lot of similar tastes. Um, architects, um, we, we have some cool um, books and stuff from a, a duo that I think may have kind of split up Olsen Kundig. We're big fans of, of the work that they do. Uh, I have four of their books immediately to my left. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they kind of were like together and then like do their own things. And like, I think they still come together sometimes, but their right. stuff, their stuff is great. I mean, super like this, this combination of like industrial, but still warm and like cool and like the uniqueness of how things move and interact and some of their structures even like transform. It's just, it's just so cool how much yeah. they can kind of pack into that. And then like some more historic stuff is like, um, Sarah just chimed in and said Tadao Ando is, is one that she's a, a big fan of. Oh yeah, totally. Just concrete and water and yep. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Yeah. That like super clean aesthetic, like minimalist aesthetic is a big, big thing for us. Yeah. And then, um, as, as cheesy as it might be for an architect, but Frank Lloyd Wright is, is awesome because you know, the, the amount of like thought that went into things, um, like a lot of people may not like be familiar with it, but like every little thing in his space, like furniture and like the way the windows opened and interacted with other things, the crown molding. Yeah. Yep. And like, like all these things that are like built, like everything is considered and yep. it's like one whole thing, not just like, okay, here's a building. Now fill it with things. Yeah. It's like, he's thinking about like, what's going to go in here and then often filling it with those things. And like, that's the, that's the full experience and that level of like detail and thought. And again, like building like a full ecosystem of things that relate to one another is something that really, really speaks to us. Yeah. One thing I love that Frank Lloyd Wright did as well is not literally, but somewhat puzzle piece like where like the outlines of certain areas on the walls could then like the negative space would be the chair in front of it, you know, that kind of thing, like that sort of Yep. Uh, it's just, yeah. Well, to your point, just everything thought about. Um, so what do you like to do now when you're not working? You said you're a cyclist. So what are you riding these days? Uh, most of the time I ride, um, my father-in-law's hand-me-down like 1980s Fuji. Amazing. Too small for me, but it's fun. And I like you're just more arrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Got to hunch over quite a bit in my legs always look like I'm you know, riding the kid's bike at some point, but, but I love that. I'm, I'm trying to, I used to mountain bike quite a bit and then just kind of ran out of time. So I'm trying to get back into that. Um, I have an old like K2 attack that I got for 
super cheap because someone bought a, uh, I don't know if you remember the old Nissan Xterra's used to come with yeah. pretty high end mountain bikes. And some people don't want mountain bikes. They're just like, right. I just like the car. And so you could find those on eBay for really, for really cheap. And so I bought one of those a long time ago and have kind of built it up, but it's, it's getting really outdated. I'm deciding on whether I want to do another round of um, edits and rebuilds to it or just switch to, to something new. Yeah. I got a new one coming like next week. So I'm pretty excited <laughs> Yeah, uh, to get back on the mountain bikes, but um, yeah, man, that's, that's awesome. And I mean, how far are you from Bentonville, Arkansas? Cause that's like mountain bike Mecca. Not too far. And they're actually building a lot of stuff here, even closer. There's this new mountain. I think it's called shepherd mountain in, um, I think it's like Ironton, Ironton, Missouri. Um, cool. where there's a lot of like that region has like the highest peak in the Midwest, I think. Huh. And so it's pretty cool. And there's lots of really interesting rock formations. And there's been some like um, some of these like YouTube crews that go around to all these different micro parks and build um, features. And they sure. built this like um, corkscrew at this park. And uh, it looks really cool. It's pretty like, I mean, it's, this is Missouri and there's a lot of like, you know, kind of like, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to, how to say it lightly, but like backwoodsy type solutions to certain things, right? Oh, come on. Branson is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, they use like a, a an old military Humvee as their chairlift, right? So at the bottom, it's just a Humvee that everybody jumps on and then rides it to the top and then you go back down. And this was just launched like, I think this this summer. I haven't even been there been there yet, but I started following there. That's it's, rad. It's got me thinking I want I want a new bike. And if my one of my friends her husband just bought like a super expensive bike and it's yeah. got me thinking like, Oh man, maybe I should get a super expensive bike. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Peer pressure. Yeah. It'll, it can happen, especially that because you know, it's like, I don't know if you collect watches or if you're into watches at all. I mean, obviously Jeremy and I are, but uh, yeah, it's, it's the N plus one factor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With bikes, watches, you know, whatever. <laughs> yep. Cars. Yep. What are you driving these days? Speaking of cars. Um, I have a Tesla model three. Oh, okay, cool. Long range dual motor. One of the early, earlier ones, Sweet. not like first run, but like second run. Yeah. I love it. I wouldn't, I don't want to drive almost anything else anymore. Really? That's a bold statement. <laughs> yeah. I just, it is like, so, so there's like this, there's a, so other designers I like, there's a, a Dieter Rams kind sure. of design mantra which is like design should be invisible like you shouldn't really think about it it should mm. just feel like it's supposed to feel and obviously that doesn't work in all the time there's like some things that people like to be a little wild and out there and edgy especially a lot of cars like that but um with the tesla it's like you don't you don't think about anything like i have my phone in my pocket i don't ever take it out I go in there my music kicks on the car just kind of does everything for you i don't have to unlock it i don't have to relock it I don't have to turn the alarm on. I don't have to do anything. Like it's, it's just such a smooth experience that just gets out of the way and lets you like transport from one place to another and in yeah. a very enjoyable way um, that it's just, it's such a good experience. Now, if you want something that's like loud and crazy and fun, it's not, it's probably not going to be that, but right. it's super fast and everybody yeah. that gets in it and you, you punch it. It's like, this is, this doesn't feel real. It feels it does not feel like anything you've ever felt. Right. Aside from like, you know, some maglev train or roller coaster or something that, that uses high powered magnets to rocket you out. Yeah. 
so they're they're fun and i don't know after having it every time i go back and you know drive our other car which is a subaru which i also love yeah it just feels i don't know it just feels like I, I have to put far more effort and stuff into it to to use it which again can be fun but on a daily basis nothing kind of beats the the tesla right a to b baby uh that's cool well listen dan i really appreciate you taking the time is there anything else you wanted to promote or talk about um got any new products coming out yeah i mean we're working on some new stuff some really cool collaborations some stuff that we have uh never done before um sweet sarah's like don't say too much right 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 was that a spoon i hear like clicking a bowl is that her way of saying stop talking (laughs) that's basically so what okay so you can't tell us what it is can you tell us a timeline yeah so some of the some of the these collaborations um one of them is very soon i would say in the next month or so cool um and then probably a few months after that we were trying to hit some some kind of like back to school fall holiday line but we'll see how that goes everything is just moving so much slower now um as things kind of get spooled back up and then even further down the line we're just going to keep expanding into to more rooms more spaces um more like organization like literally outfitting entire spaces so that you can kind of again have this really cohesive um, space. Yeah. Well, obviously we've got a lot to look forward to. It sounds like with, with regards to collaborations and stuff. Well, cool, man. Well, yeah. Thanks again for your time and, uh, take care of yourself. We'll be in touch and, uh, really appreciate it. All right, right, Dan, take care, man. Later. See ya. Huge thanks goes out to Dan once again. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And while you're there, if you don't mind rating and even leaving a short review, it helps way more than you think. Please give Standard H a follow on Instagram at Standard H underscore, as well as the podcast page at Standard H underscore podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as the clear audio for the noise canceling headphones. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Standard Age podcast in two weeks' time. Thanks again for listening.